Here we are. It's Thursday, and you're back at Vanished in the Valley. I am your host, Athena, and I'll be taking you through part two of the Satanic Panic of the 80s and 90s, slash the McMartin Preschool Trials. So last Tuesday, we covered just kind of like the basics. I kind of introduced you to Judy Johnson, the mother that kicked it all off at the McMartin Preschool. I told you how the media just basically uh, characterized her as psychotic alcoholic and I kind of give you some of the witness statements and I totally agree the witness statement sounds completely bonkers but today I'm going to put some of those statements in context for you and we're also going to finally delve into the controversial tunnel aspect of this story. Just so you know, uh, proceed with caution because uh, it talks about child sexual abuse and that kind of fucked up thing. So if it's not something you want to listen to, tune out. On Tuesday's episode, I told you some of the statements made by the children and they did sound super outlandish and totally implausible. But I kept telling you, keep in mind, these statements were coming from children that were you know, two years old, five years old, seven years old. I didn't even have the words, let alone the frame of reference to explain the type of abuse they were experiencing. I told you about Judy Johnson, the woman that kicked it off, and some of the stuff that her child had experienced. I was uh, doing some research and I came across a paper written by Dr. Roland C. Summit. At the time he wrote this, 1994, he was a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. He actually had met Judy. And what he says, just totally like, he basically says what I've been trying to say, but does it in a way that makes it all come together. So he's talking about having met Miss Johnson in February 1984. And this is what he says. I'm convinced that Judy Johnson was quite sane and emotionally contained, even as she described the improbable complaints of her child. Quote, unquote. He doesn't like to talk about being buried alive or about large animals or that he was sodomized by a lion. Such complaints were totally unheard of in 1984. But they made more sense as older, less credulous children in the Netherlands in 1987 in England in 1988 and North Carolina in 1989 made quite independent observations that these wild animals had zippers on their costumes. So all that stuff I was talking about last week about the goats and the lions makes a little bit more sense now if these are actually people dressed up as these wild animals. And if it's independent children, independent time and independent places all coming up with this, that's also kind of what I was saying. How do all these people, all these children from different times, different places, how are they all coming up with the same story? And I'm going to say actually this right now. There's going to be the needless haters that don't provide anything positive to the conversation. And there's also going to be the true crime Karens. Oh yeah, you negative Nancys know who you are. You are the ones that sit at home and just wait to critique and be negative and just talk shit and just overall just bring the whole true crime arena down. 
You're not creating yourselves. You're not contributing to helping finding missing people. You're just sitting there listening to everyone else's podcast being rude for no other reason than you're a true crime Karen. And those ones you're never going to satisfy either. But hey, what can you do? And there's going to definitely be those people that it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you put before them. You could put the smoking fucking gun on their lap with the smoke still coming out and they're still not going to believe it. And that's fine. That's their right. They can believe or not believe whatever the hell they want. But I'm choosing to believe these kids and I'm not choosing to do it blindly. I'm doing it based upon hours and hours of reading different pages of documents, watching different documentaries, and just critically thinking about what the hell went on at this school for years. Uh, last week I was telling you a little bit about an oxygen channel documentary and I mentioned a couple by the name of John and Mary Siafi. In the interview, Mary is describing about how she's never even heard of sexual abuse, child abuse, and all of that. Her daughter actually was one of the ones that went to the school. Now, she describes two different situations she's had with one with her daughter and one with a friend's daughter. Now, I keep telling you about these tunnels and we haven't got to it, but we are about to. So she's with her friend and her friend's daughter and they're at the school and they're walking around and this is after it's closed down mind you so they're walking around a little girl leads them into the bathroom and she points at an area in the wall and she's like this is how we used to go into the tunnels and you know they're both standing there looking at the wall there's you know an unblemished wall there's no door there's no entrance to any tunnel or anything so they just kind of brush it off or whatever and a few days later mary brings her own daughter in and lo and behold her daughter who does not know her friend's daughter and did not go to school with her, leads her to the same bathroom and points out the same section of wall and says the same thing. This is where we used to enter the tunnels. This is uh, what Mary's daughter, Elizabeth, has to say about the tunnels. Felt like a tunnel and having pictures of what to me I thought was the devil on the wall. I don't know if it was a bull's head or the devil, but to me as a kid, it was the devil. And there being like, um, like candles off the side, like a light, you know, off the wall and it was dark. I remember going downstairs to get into it. So I went a couple of nights later, I was with my friend, my good friend and her daughter to go over and pound and the daughter said, oh, I want to show you. This is where we went into the tunnel. Oh, I still get goosebumps. Because how could two different kids who didn't know each other, they didn't know each other at preschool, and they never talked about preschool. That last part you just heard was Elizabeth's mom, Mary, just kind of describing those goosebumps and how two different children in two different times explained the same thing with the tunnel entrance. Now these are just two of many of the same exact stories these kids had on just the entrance to the tunnel, the descriptions of the tunnel, and the chambers that these tunnels led to. 
So we are about to dive into the rabbit hole of the tunnels beneath the McMartin Preschool. So as the investigation goes on and the children are being interviewed by therapists and the police, they, the, ther the parents and the therapists begin hearing strange tales of underground activities that are going on at this school. The kids describe there's these rabbit hutches out back that I guess if you go to a certain part of the floor in the preschool, it, you could go under this floor and get to it. There was another underground passage that actually led you to a neighboring building. They say they would be loaded into vehicles inside a garage from that building and then transported to other locations for the group rituals. They say there's a secret room accessed by the tunnels under the preschool. So as in all these other satanic panic fucking ridiculous claims, everyone starts thinking it's a, it's a red herring. And there's no way that all of these crazy things could be going on. There's no murder. There's no pornography and ritualistic killing of animals. There's no way. So there was actually a couple of digs on this property to try to like get to the, the point of, is there these tunnels or are there not the tunnels? And the initial dig, they decided there was no tunnels. And let's just get into that little shit show of an investigation first. A group of parents basically pressured the district attorney and on March 17th, 1985, they initiated an excavation in the adjacent lot. The district attorney then authorized an archeological inspection of the lot by Scientific Resource Surveys Incorporated, SRS. So let's just, uh, it's fucking ridiculous, the lack of work these people did. There was no exploration beneath the slab floor Instrumental survey with terrain conductivity meter failed to detect alterations under the concrete. The SRS technician informed the district attorney investigator that the meter proved useless within the structure because of excessive interference from pipes and steel reinforcement. The preemptory conclusion at the time was that there was no tunnels and that has basically become gospel among the detractors of the McMartin families. Influential journalists ridiculed parents for ever even entertaining such a possibility and mocked their subsequent attempts at exploration. Fast forward to April in 1990. The property was sold. Several parents obtained permission from the new owner to search for the tunnels, and they decided to cut out a section of concrete. And coming up with ambiguous findings, it's become apparent that experienced supervision was needed. Gerald Hoobs, a professional miner, was engaged to ensure safety and to better define the nature of the underground artifacts. When an apparent tunnel entrance was discovered and then verified by geologist Dr. E. Don Michael, parents sought out the archaeological team that completed the present project. The project was designed and conducted by E. Gary Strichtel, Ph.D., on the recommendation of Rainier Berger, Ph.D., professor and chair of the interdisciplinary program of the archaeological department at UCLA. Dr. Strichtel was the director of environmental research archaeologists, a scientific consortium ERA. So, and in this, I'm getting all of my information 
from an article entitled Archaeological Investigations of the McMartin Preschool Site, Manhattan Beach, California, E. Gary Stickle, Ph.D. Basically, the primary research problem was to determine whether or not there was a tunnel and an underground room at the site. And to meet the test hypothesis, a tunnel would be an underground feature that would connect to the surface of the site and extend underground for some distance, possibly, but not necessarily, connecting to an underground room. It would have to have dimensions large enough to accommodate adult human movement through it, such as a tunnel on the subject property could have been constructed in two ways. Either dug out like a trench-like opening, which then would be roofed over with wood and or like different materials, basically, to cover it over and fill above. So basically, you can't see it from the top. It's just going to have dirt on the top. Or would be dug out completely underground, which would then leave a ceiling over its passageway formed by the naturally deposited soil. If the latter were such the case, a tunnel may or may not have been fitted with underground roof of wood and or other materials. They're just basically saying you could have put wood, but it wasn't necessary. So in either scenario, one or two, such a tunnel may have had posts of wood and or other materials to serve as shoring reinforcements. That's basically the operational definition these professionals were working with to consider whether or not there were actual tunnels. This is what the team ended up finding. And I'm going to read from their actual report. And if any of it seems like super confusing, I'm going to go back and I'll try to like clear it up. The profile of an entrance or exit of a tunnel was discovered under the foundation of the west wall of the building. It's classroom number four. And I'm going to put a map up. So if you guys want to go try to see what these tunnels look like, you can see that up on the Instagram. So the signature feature was described and sketched by consulting geologist Don Michael, Ph.D., the feature was clearly distinguished by loose, disturbed soil and the artifacts contained within. The outside margins had an inverted bell-shaped curved profile. The tunnel signature was established both by sharp demarcation of soil, color, and texture, as well as by the exclusive presence within the cavity fill of assorted historic debris, such as old cans and bottles, various metal fragments, and small household items. The roof at that point was provided by the bottom of the concrete foundation. Inside the foundation, a roof of soil was evident. The profile was also demarcated by severed tree roots, the significance of which was described by professional tree surgeon Jerry Hobbs. Okay, so this part is from the tree surgeon Jerry Hobbs. This is what he's saying. Running under the foundation from south to north was large tree roots, which had been chopped off at the edge of where there was a large amount of cans and bottles and plastics being found. A growing root would have had to run in and through the cans and the bottles, but it did not. The root, some three inches in diameter, had been severed with a handsaw about 90% through and then pulled off, peeling back the bark and the root. The peeled layer of the cambium layer had well-established healing already in progress. New feeder roots had started to grow from the cut portion of the root and had attained lengths of 6 inches to 15 inches. A space of 59 inches to the north, the roots had picked up again. Only these had been chopped off from the larger root and were dead. The dead root was about one and a half inch in diameter and continued in the same 30 degree angle as the other roots. So basically what this guy is just saying is 
somebody had to go in there and actually sever these tree roots. They didn't get severed in any natural way. And this guy's a professional tree surgeon. He was able to see the cuts, the healings, and then the regrowth. So going on, a plastic sandwich bag was found under the foundation at a depth of 42 inches below the surface and about three to six inches inside the wall line of the building. The bag was imprinted with Disney characters and the words, copyright 1982 Walt Disney Productions, along with the logo of the schoolhouse with Disney class of 1982-1983. These factors led Dr. Michael to conclude, therefore, the cavity would have been no older than 1983. Due to the crucial location and dating of the Disney bag as evidence of recent disturbance, alternate hypotheses were examined. Could the bag have been artifactual and not of a clandestine buried tunnel, but rather incidental to the parents' March 1985 dig, or to the subsequent SRS excavation commissioned by the district attorney? After careful analysis of the parameters of, of each excavation, Dr. Langenwalter, senior author of the SRS study, concluded that since the parents' backhoe tr trench was no less than 137 inches from the northwest corner, it is clear that, that the plastic Disney bag was located by Hobbs in the virgin area between the SRS excavation and the parents' dig. So basically what he's saying is the original digs never even came near that area. So there's no possibility that this somehow got mixed up in the dirt when the area was disturbed on the two previous digs. So in other excavation sites, other excavations were conducted in the westernmost sector of Unit 1 in Room 3. They selected this site because a GPR anomaly was detected through the concrete floor in an area next to and continuing up against the west dividing wall between classrooms 3 and 4. Several human-introduced artifacts were encountered adjacent to a 3-inch cast-iron waste pipe running northward from the dig. The size of the artifacts ruled out their introduction by burrowing rodents, and their distribution was confined to a shallow trench-like profile of different color soil. This proved to be mechanically dug trench to accommodate waste pipes from the bathroom, from classroom number three. It's also substantiated by a signature characteristic of a backhoe. However, one aspect of the pipe and trench complex was uncharacteristic and unexplainable at the time of the excavation. Check this out, guys. The stainless steel clamps connecting an angle of the waste pipe. These two clamps were notable in that they appeared to be brand new, with a very shiny silver color, lacking the patina expected of objects buried long underground. That apparent disparity of age or use became more apparent as other clamps were unearthed elsewhere, all of which were considerably etched and discolored. There was no opening through the concrete floor which could have allowed for access to these clamps after the floor was poured, and there was no explanation for their like new appearance if they had been remained buried for the life of the structure. A possible tunnel feature was excavated from the toilet area and classroom one and the office. This feature was distinguished clearly by the color and compaction of the interior soil, which was much darker and much more loosely compacted. The feature appeared to connect the area beneath the office and classrooms number one and proceeded eastward to the eastern outer wall of the preschool. Mr. Hobbs, the tree surgeon, 
made a number of ancillary observations summarized as follow. The children stated that they had entered a tunnel from the southeast corner of room number one. We dug down along the east wall of the room and one in the bathroom. As we followed the disturbed area south, it went under the wall into the now existing bathroom. After about six feet, it made an abrupt right turn to the east and headed for the neighboring property. The children had told two different stories about this tunnel prior to the dig. The first one, that they had gone through the tunnel and come up to the house next door, and two, that they had come up in a garage, which blocked the house from the street. At any rate, the tunnel went in that direction, and I went to the house next door and followed and walked between the school and the house, which were only about four and a half feet apart. I went under the house and bellied my way towards the southeast corner of the house. After going about 20 feet, I found an area inside the west wall of the house where the floor was cut out. If I remember correctly, the area of the floor that was missing was 36 inches by 38 or 41. You could reach up and touch the bathtub which was exposed. The plumbing in that area appeared to be quite new. I went back to the school and continued the dig. The tunnel I had been following was now headed towards the corner of the house where I had found the hole cut in the floor. I was very close to the foundation of the house, I was sure, so I poked a hole up through the surface and the hole I punched through was about two feet beyond the west wall of the house. This tunnel was in direct line with the cut and the opening under the house. So here it is guys. We have a whole team of professors from UCLA. We have a tree surgeon. And all of these people are corroborating what the children have said. I'm just, I'm blown away that when the district attorney did their little dig, they didn't actually dig. They didn't even look under the concrete floors where the children had said all of this stuff was taking place. So the journalists latch on to this first incomplete excavation and thrash the victims of sexual abuse and their parents, like I keep screaming about. What the fuck gave them the right to do that? And they basically drove one of these mothers, Judy Johnson, to insanity and to drink herself to death. But not one journalist was held accountable when nowadays we hold teenage girls accountable for helping teenage boys commit suicide. But all of these adults that just harped on this poor woman until she self-destructed, instead of trying to get her help, they just like went after her when she had one son that was being sexually abused and raped, one son that was dying from a brain tumor, the whole wrath of the media against her, and a husband attacking her in court who wouldn't have a fucking nervous breakdown especially if xanax wasn't around for fuck's sake people but i mean i just i just read you all of that and went through all of that just so you could understand that this is what made me 100 percent believe the children were telling the truth some of the things they said may sound super outlandish like poking tigers and pulling lion tails and flying in hot air balloons. But if they're sneaking these kids in tunnels to the adjacent property into garages where they can be loaded up in vehicles and taken out, what's to say they weren't taken on a hot air balloon ride? What's to say they weren't taken to meet men in business suits that then sexually assaulted them? And keep in mind, please don't ever forget, these people were never convicted. Their records were clear. 
Which leads me to another thing. Why was the district attorney so incompetent? Was it just a case of these stories are so outlandish it can't be true? These stories are so horrible I don't want them to be true? Or was it something more sinister? Like they were trying to protect somebody or an organization or they had been told to purposely lose this case. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know because even now, even with this evidence that has come out now 10, 20, 30 years later, these people are still just totally disrespected in the media and people continue to say satanic panic like this ritualized abuse never happened, like these disgusting pedophile rings never existed and these children weren't victimized in the most horrible unimaginable way but i kind of want to get to some of the the media that attacked these people so let's start talking about them so we have an article and a journalist who worked for the los angeles magazine mary a fisher and her whole summary of it was the case was simply invented and transmorgified into a national cause celebrité, or whatever that French bullshit is, by the misplaced zeal of six people. Judy Johnson, seriously mentally ill mother who died of alcoholism. I swear to God, every time they say this woman's name, mentally ill, schizophrenic, or alcoholism is always attached. Um, and she goes on to blame a few other people, too. Uh, Jane Hogue, who was a detective. Key McFarlane, you heard about her in the last episode. She was a social worker who interviewed the kids. And a few other people. But she was one of the main detractors that just went after Judy. A recent article in the Washington Post by Maura Casey this girl, without even doing any amount of research that, you know, could possibly be from the other side, says, Some parallels have been drawn between the Salem witch trials of 1692 and the false accusations of sexual abuse that swept America in the 1980s. The difference is, those falsely accused in Salem got public apologies from their accusers and reparations. No such luck for the dozens of daycare workers and others who were falsely accused and imprisoned in modern-day America. We should be ashamed. No, Mora, we should be ashamed with journalism that doesn't actually look into the entire case and tries to shame a whole group of victims. I could go on and on because literally it was like every major newspaper and news channel went after these people. But I don't want to waste, you know, the last few minutes I have going over those dumbasses. I think, uh, you know, it, it has left a legacy, and I'm not saying every single accuser was being 100% truthful. I'm sure there was some false allegations in there, but specifically this McMartin trial, I, I believe a lot of those children were victims. I believe there were some sick motherfuckers running this school, and they were in touch with some pedophiles with money. Because usually this abuse comes down to that. Somebody supplying the children for money so these perverts can sexually abuse them. And I thought one of the good things that kind of came from this is federal dollars were kind of thrown at it then at this point. 
And with that money, the FBI was actually able to come up with an SRA or RA, which is Satanic Ritual Abuse or Ritual Abuse Handbook. And they had conferences where different district attorneys could get together and exchange tips on how to actually prosecute these cases and come away with a win. And it helped out law enforcement to actually spot SRA. Too bad that couldn't happen back then because the, <laughs> the prosecutor in our case so dropped the ball. A portion of the funds were used to publish the book Behind the Playground Walls which uses a sample of children drawn from the McMartin families. The book claimed to study the effects of quote-unquote reported rather than actual abuse, but portrayed all of the McMartin children as actual victims of abuse despite a lack of convictions during the trial and without mentioning questions about the reality of the accusations. How hard and how much critical thinking does it take to realize these children didn't have words for what was happening to them? So another grant of $173,000 went to David Finkelhor. <laughs> I'm not even joking. David Finkelhor, who used the funds to investigate allegations of daycare sexual abuse throughout the country, combining study of verified crimes by admitted pedophiles and unverified accusations of satanic ritual abuse. So, yeah, I mean, the, the problem did get some money thrown at it and... Hopefully now people, prosecutors, people in the justice system won't look at it through like the lens of like, oh, Satanism, but more as ritualized abuse or just plain old sexual abuse from pedophiles. Because as I have showed you in the different episodes, the Franklin episode, through many of them, you know, the Boys Town thing was crazy. I don't even want to get started on that. But the pedophiles are out there. They're through all walks of life, from living in poverty to the middle-class neighbors, all the way up to the celebrities, and even infiltrating our politicians and the justice system. So, I mean, basically what that leaves you with is you need to educate yourself so your children are protected, because you are basically the only thing standing between these perverts and your kids. And... It seems like on certain levels, if something happens, you know, like in a sexual assault, you might get the help from the law, but you might also just get turned away as it's a fantasy. Too many times sexual abuse was just brushed off as, you know, a delusion or it didn't happen or she was asking for it. Just some kind of bullshit like that. You guys know what I'm talking about. And it seems like it's getting better, but is it really? I mean, is it truly getting better? Look at all the reports. Look at the Wayfair scandal that just came out. That was shut down in like three minutes because the company made up some bullshit about it being industrial cabinets. Well, what about the pillows that were $10,000? And the internet has made this whole pedophile situation explode. There are child pornography, not just on the dark web, but on the regular web. My dad was a high-tech crimes detective for the sheriff's department, and he used to have to bust these disgusting pedophiles and go through hard drives and find horrible depictions of child porn. And it's real. It's true. He also told me of going and doing search warrants on houses where they did have satanic altars. He found human skulls in these houses. So 
I think the media just wanted to highlight the most crazy aspects of these cases just to, you know, clickbait, old school clickbait, and everybody bought it. Everybody needs to stop fucking just believing everything the media and the politicians tells us. I just, uh, I don't know when everyone's going to learn that lesson, but damn guys. So I don't know. There's just so much to this case. I can make 50 more episodes and it's just really sad that no justice was served as per usual. But I don't know. All I can say is be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Cha-chao.